always better as a parent when you could ask questions about things you have only like a very superficial understanding of, like the giraffe's neck is long so it can reach the tall leaves. Right. Hello, welcome to another episode of the Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, here today with Sarah Cliff and Ezra Klein. Hi, Matt. Hello. Um, we want to we want to talk about some some chip stuff, children's health insurance. We we love not healthcare. potato variety, but uh, health not potato variety. chips. Uh, or uh, I, I had some beet chips over the weekend. Uh, they were doesn't sound good. A lot healthier than delicious chips. Um, <laughs> And uh, we're gonna we're gonna break with format a little bit though because we we wanted to talk about uh, some changes that Facebook is making that are uh, you know important to the media important possibly to how politics work uh, but there's also a good white paper that's very relevant to that discussion so we're gonna we're gonna blend it all together like like crazy people it's gonna be very exciting so last week Mark Zuckerberg came out with some pretty seismic changes to the way Facebook is working uh, he had a Facebook post that's how you announce big big moves in the media now. And he wrote that that recently we've gotten feedback from our community that public content, posts from businesses, brands, and media is crowding out the personal moments that lead us to connect more with each other. It's easy to understand how we got here. Video and other public content have exploded on Facebook in the past couple of years. And now that there's more public content than posts from your friends and family, the balance of what's in the newsfeed has shifted away from the most important thing Facebook can do, help us connect with each other. We feel a responsibility to make sure our services aren't just fun to use, but also good for people's well-being. In order to make Facebook better for people's well-being, to make it not just time spent, but time well spent, uh, Zuckerberg announced that they would be making changes to the news feed, which is the algorithm more or less that controls what you see. And so you're going to be seeing more things from friends and family, less from the media, from publishers, from brands. Um, and, and just in general, Facebook is going to be moving away from news, away from things that prioritize engagement at all costs, and at least in theory, towards friends and family and things where you actually don't just spend time, but you do something. You click on something, you you write a comment. The overall big picture idea here is that talking with your friends and your family and doing stuff on Facebook makes you feel good, but reading news and just passively consuming articles and video and feeling outraged makes you feel bad. And at least in theory, Facebook would like to make you feel good. And as such, they're going to upend sort of everything going on. They lost $25 billion roughly in market cap when they announced this. I'm sure that'll come back quickly though. Um, But the media is freaking out about this because Facebook over the past couple years has been a huge driver. A huge number of investment decisions have been made based on this, particularly on Facebook video, where Zuckerberg has this kind of weird passive voice. Video and other public (laughs) content have exploded on Facebook. That's that's what I was going to say. It was weird. Like, they... (laughs) I mean, not only did they change the all kinds of things happen in in algorithms, I'm sure, on a daily basis, but they like told everybody, like, hey, (laughs) we're going to start putting more video up on Facebook. They like, they literally made cash payments to media brands to do Facebook optimized video recordings. It didn't, I mean, I guess video did explode. Can I ask a clarifying question as we get into this? Yes. So I know Al- Facebook tweaks its algorithm all the time. Matt and I were talking about how, like, even in our newsroom, we heard, like, a year or two ago things that were similar to this. What's different? Like, 
has it happened yet? Like, what's different in 2018 this versus is, that? This is believed, and and we'll have to see because the the changes haven't been rolled out. But but the reason I think it's big enough that we should talk about it here is this is believed to be Facebook making and announcing a major shift in its strategic ambition. Um, so they're not just making a small tweak to the to the algorithm. You actually saw a tweak, as you're mentioning, um, I think it was now a year or two back, where they sort of downweighted what you saw from pages. Right. So like a Vox is a page, the New York Times is a page, but right. like- you Or know, like Sarah personal... Cliff's professional page yep. lost to Sarah Cliff's actual human exactly. page. So the, they did that. And, and news organizations, by the way, have been seeing a decline in Facebook traffic now for some time. Um, there was a huge rise in Facebook traffic. If I'm remembering correctly, starting in, I think it's 2011 or 2013, um, it becomes really a central driver to, to most media organizations. You see a lot of Facebook first organi- uh, organizations arise, famously Upworthy. But I mean, if you look at like BuzzFeed's video strategy, it's a very Facebook centric video strategy. So a lot of organizations make huge investments um, and in some cases build their entire uh construction around what Facebook wants, what the algorithm prizes. And now what seems to be happening is Facebook is saying, we made maybe a mistake trying to make ourselves the central source for news, right? The central informational platform of the 21st century, where you learn about the world, where you go to entertain yourself, where you go to um, see what is happening. That was biting off probably more than we could chew. There's a, a pretty good piece by Charlie Warzel at BuzzFeed, and, and, and Charlie, I think, is really one of the best um, writers on this kind of thing. And he wrote, it's an unprecedented acknowledgement that Facebook's core feature, newsfeed, has not worked out at all the way it was intended. It was abused by peddlers of, of misinformation. It was used by foreign governments to attempt to interfere in elections, and it made people feel bad. And to me, that's the big picture here. Facebook seem to want to become the public square of the 21st century. And in doing that, it really did have the power, right? Two billion people are on Facebook. And so it became this central player in American and actually international politics. There's been a huge amount of blowback to that. And while Zuckerberg and and others are saying, no, this isn't about that. This is just about making sure people enjoy their Facebook experience more. I'm not even sure those things, by the way, are, are separable. It certainly seems they're taking a step back and saying, you know, maybe we don't want the regulatory scrutiny, the public scrutiny, the backlash that comes from making these decisions that change elections, that change the future of the world. Maybe we want to be a place that's more about where you see, you know, pictures of your friends' kids. To me, an interesting thing about the statement was, you know, uh, Warzel in his article says it was an unprecedented acknowledgement in that line you quoted. But actually, they have acknowledged nothing. Right. Like Mark Zuckerberg in that statement, he doesn't so much as acknowledge that the reason video exploded on Facebook was that Facebook issued a directive for video to explode. They don't acknowledge in that statement that fake news has exploded on Facebook. Um, and they not only do they not acknowledge that Facebook makes people unhappy, but they uh, misrepresent what the research on that says, right? And they say that engaging more with other people's posts will make you happy, whereas this, like, bad news will make you sad. Um, Maybe they have a study that says that, but the studies that I've shown indicate that just using Facebook at all makes you unhappy, that people engage in a lot of curated self-presentation on Facebook. They put forward a sort of a best version of themselves, you know, in your 
pictures with your kid that you post on Facebook, you don't put the like super bleary eyed parent, right? Or the like spill that ruined your chair or you being up late at night stressed out about how are you going to be able to afford the whatever. And you look at other people and their perfect lives and you feel bad about yourself. And they're just like, they're not acknowledging that. They're, they're not acknowledging anything, any of the problems. And I think that's like a really a core, deep, fundamental problem. Because I have to say, when, when I speak to people who work in the tech universe, the Facebook people really stand out as being much more high-minded and like well-meaning than the people who I encounter who work at Google and Apple and Amazon. Um, but their product is like, it's much more damaging to people. They've just like stumbled into this disaster zone as if a bunch of people who really want to save the world found themselves working at a cigarette company. And so they keep <sighs> encrusting themselves in like more layers of nonsense. And and that that to me is what this statement is. It's like, we acknowledge nothing. We're changing things, but for no reason. Right? Like, we didn't destroy the political system. We're just uh, backing away from some things we may have done. <laughs> and I am also, you know, there's two things I have read slash listened to recently that make me skeptical of these changes working. And I would say, so it sounds like if I'm understanding this change correctly, like something like Vox, a fake news outlet, like our page will just be less emphasized in a Facebook feed, whereas something One like... One news note, the punctuation was not Vox, oh, yeah. colon, a fake news app. <laughs> no. Vox, or comma, verse. No, 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 Vox, <laughs> yes, separate. Vox or a fake news outlet would... That's a disjunctive or, by the way. <laughs> would be, would be de-emphasized, but like if I share a Vox article or I share a fake news article from my Facebook page and a lot of people comment or a lot of people like it, like that would show up a lot because it is showing engagement and showing meaningful interaction. And I guess I think people like to share things that align with their worldview, that they like to engage with news, whether real or fake, that speaks to something they believe to be true. Um, There was an interesting article in the New York Times this weekend about some of the country's where Facebook says it's not the same policy, but the policy, at least in its contours, sounds pretty similar, where there's an effort to emphasize friends and family, de-emphasize publishers. And you have publishers in Slovakia who have said they found this is a worse environment for fake news, that publishers are being de-emphasized. People are less likely to share their articles, but you're having things that are patently false going very, very viral on Facebook. Um, another show I listened to, um, the podcast Reply All had a really interesting episode, I think a few weeks ago, called The Prophet, looking at how one of the Mexican political parties had essentially hired this underground army of Twitter trolls to post, like, create these fake controversies when something was going bad for them, that they would kind of notice something else going on. There was this one story about a woman who was sexually assaulted that they kind of started commenting on and driving all this attention to, like helping make it a national news story. It seems like even a policy like this, it it leaves a lot of space for things that are not true, for things that a lot of us would consider destructive to to flourish, to continue to be shared. It I I don't fully see how this solves if, and I guess, I mean, this is a question given like what Matt's saying, they're not really saying what the problem is. 
if the problem is the dispersion of fake news and that is bad for politics, I don't necessarily see this as a good solve for that problem. So let's step back into the problem because I, I think that's actually a really good way to look at this and also will end up being a good bridge to the to the paper we want to talk about. So I do want to say that Facebook has said what problem it is they're trying to solve. Whether that is true, I think, is an, is an open question. But they published research a couple weeks ago that really presaged what they're doing here. And it was research that basically showed, as I said earlier, that when you are on Facebook and you are, you know, liking the photo of a friend or commenting on your aunt's life update, that it makes you feel more connected, it makes you feel happier. And that when you're doing all this other stuff, like you're reading a New York Times article or like you're watching a video that is auto-playing and like making you mad about Congress, like you, you become less happy. And so they are saying that they are trying to move to that 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 first bucket. That research probably could be consistent with what Matt is saying, which is it's other research showing that just overall it makes you less happy. It may be that you could move and still like the mix would be off, but but that's what they're saying they're trying to solve. Well, I think, I, yeah. Just to finish a point, I think the thing they're just clearly not talking about because it's just much more difficult to talk about is that that research and the reason they're doing it and the kind of feel around it is it's intersecting with what is a pretty big movement now in the tech world. There are a bunch of Facebook founders who have more or less disowned the platform at this point. Um, Sean Parker from Napster, like a bunch of others who was an early investor in it. A lot of people have become associated now with this movement that actually Facebook and a bunch of other platforms, to be fair, have become so good at, at addicting us, like hitting these little like dopamine buttons and using these design principles that really are, are built to create habits, really built to, to key on addiction, that they've become like a kind of attentional pollution. And that way, the, the smoking metaphor is not a bad one. Then engagement is another way of saying addiction. And one thing that they key on to addict you is the power of negative emotions. On on, on my interview podcast this week, I had an interview with Jaron Lanier, who's a sort of big tech sort of guy. He was a guy who coined the term virtual reality. He's a very, very interesting and longtime critic of things like Facebook. And, and he has this good line where he says, you engage people by ruining society. That is the business model. Like that is what engagement is. So that that's one bucket. Um, and then this other bucket is the political system, right? So on the one hand, people are, are not happy on Facebook. They're, they're feeling bad. They're going there. They're getting angry. They're still there because they're addicted, but they're like, they're addicted in an unhappy way. And so there's now like a movement to try to get away from it. Um, you know, there's been a lot of coverage of this thing like Tristan Harris is doing. A lot of stuff there that I think is interesting. And then there's the political side of it where Facebook executives are getting hauled before Congress to testify, where they're doing inquiries into how much fake news and how much fake advertising there is, where the media is constantly angry because though Facebook is giving them a ton of traffic, they're not making much money off of it. And they feel they're constantly um, at Facebook's whim. And that also Facebook is pushing the entire thing towards this kind of wild outrage-based engagement. And so that, I think, is the bigger long-term existential threat to Facebook, that they have another bad election and they actually get heavily regulated. Or they get too big, but also everybody hates them. And so they eventually get brought in for an antitrust suit in the way Microsoft did in the 90s, and they get broken up or they come under heavy kind of antitrust regulation. I think if you're Mark Zuckerberg and you're looking at the future of Facebook, that is a huge threat to Facebook because Facebook is pretty clearly, particularly owning Instagram too, it's pretty clearly um, a it has a very heavy concentration in the markets it is running, um, depending on how you define what its competitive market is. And so I see what's happening here as on the one hand, 
them trying to explicitly address the time well spent issue, like explicitly address the idea that, you know, you should be on there without hating yourself and feeling quite so unhappy when you're there, but trying to implicitly address the long-term regulatory threat by, under the guise of the first thing, beginning to retreat from being quite so important in politics. I think Ben Thompson on his uh, his Stratechery newsletter has this really interesting interview with the, the vice president at, at Facebook who runs the news feed. And to me, the thing that was most telling there was that the, the Facebook guy keeps doing this little dance that is common among corporate executives in America these days who are trying to make something better, where sometimes he's saying, like, we're doing the right thing because we want to do the right. He's giving like a normal human being's answer to a question about like, why would you change what you were doing? Right. And it's like, if you went down to uh, my neighborhood coffee shop, you know, small business, I, I know the owner and you asked him, it's like, how come you're putting like less poison in your water? And he'd be <laughs> like, well, because poisoning people is wrong morally. And we'd all be like, that's, that's a good idea, man. Like, thank you. That's probably also why he donates to the local PTA and is involved in the community. Um, but then the executive keeps seeming to realize that he doesn't run a coffee shop, right? That he's an officer of a public corporation in America, and he actually has a perceived legal and perhaps a moral obligation to damage the world in order to make more money for the shareholders. So he'll like then pivot and he'll be like, yeah, it's true. Our stock went down yesterday, but we really think this is going to be better for the business in the long run. Right. And so there's this kind of uh, divine coincidence that he's positing where like the best thing for Facebook to do for the world is also the best thing to do for Facebook shareholders. And I I don't think he's saying that because he's, like, full of shit or something. It's actually the the dynamic in which, like, corporate America and the legal system has trapped itself over the past 30 or 40 years is that you can't, as an executive, or at least people think you can't, just, like, say, like, <laughs> we think this would be better, right? Whereas, like, Mark Zuckerberg is just a... All these guys, you know, they want to make money. They want to succeed in business. But, like, they give a lot of money to charity. Like, to God, it would be so reasonable to say, I thought we would just get by with 5% less money and, like, do something helpful to people, right? Like, that's, like, a normal thing for a rich guy to, like, have people want to believe. And a good way to get people to believe it would be to actually do it. But they're they're not just Facebook, but like all of corporate America is in this like mental, political, and legal trap where you can't say that. And it would be no, no, no. it's not actually a legal trap. That's just perceived. I mean, it's it's hard to say. It's not a law, but there's there's some judge made law to support this view. You would be at some kind of risk of a shareholder lawsuit if you openly said that you were doing something that was bad for for shareholders, and it's. It's tricky, you know, because if you think outside of the tech world, right, it's just like it's clearly true that like selling sugary snacks is like not a great thing to do for the universe, um, but it's a pretty good way to make money. And, you know, if you work at a company who's like your business is you distribute like candy bars to people like you really should. Like, ask yourself some hard questions about what you're doing with your life. Like, it's clearly bad. And and to just say, like, well, it makes people happy, like, it does. But, like, it also kills them. And 
that can happen with technology too. And like people who mean well in the world should think hard about it. But also like the system should allow people to say, right? Like we wanted to have a very successful company without damaging the world. So we made some decisions to make the world better. And and they sort of can't. And you can see it in their public statements. It's it's unfortunate. Yeah, Farhad uh, Manju in the Times had a nice column where he kind of draws out this analogy, like thinking of Facebook as this cookie company that is ultra successful. It hands out free cookies. Who doesn't like cookies? Cookies are delicious. And then at some point they realize cookies also are com- contributing to the obesity crisis. They are very, very bad to have free cookies on every street corner. And they decide to start adding broccoli to their cookies. But it's like very hard to wrap your head around when you have like these free cookies that everyone loves. Like why why would you put the broccoli in there? And how are you like long-term going to make the argument that it is good for your cookie company stakeholders, that there should be broccoli in the cookies that you're selling. Um, just to focus on the personal side of this, um, like aside from the political, which I do want to hear you know, Ezra talk about our white paper in a moment. One of the things, um, I read that Charlie Warzel article that Ezra mentioned earlier, and there's one line that jumped out at me um, that kind of shifted how I think about this, where he talked about iMessage as a competitor to Facebook, which is not how I had thought about texting until I saw that line, as in it is also a way to share information with friends and family. I'm sure like WhatsApp, like a lot of us have like group text messages or things like that where we keep up to date with people. And it made me think about whether the format of Facebook is ever going to be like a great place to connect with your friends and family, you know, in part because of that performative aspect of, you know, over like text message, like I share bad news with people. I talk about like my shitty commute on our terrible metro <laughs> system this morning. And like I talk about, you know, all those like worrying things with people over Facebook. Like I would not post on about those sort of, I post about those sort of things on Instagram on those more performative things that are a lot more public. Um, And I kind of wonder if a platform like Facebook is ever going to deliver like what I like about texting with people and or if there's something just like flawed about this very public format of it and this, you know, fact that you're constantly like accumulating people like there's people I haven't talked to with like since college, like as it is a much bigger platform, I, I wonder if this thing they are going for, if it can even exist on the system that they have built. So this is why I think it's interesting to think of Facebook as like a big suite of things. Because so Facebook does have Messenger, right? They have this iMessage competitor. <gasps> but everyone you don't want to message you messages you <laughs> well, on that, Messenger. Well, that's true too. But Facebook first, it used to be that you could just message people on Facebook. And now you literally just can't, at least on your phone, like it'll force you into IME- into Messenger because they're trying to kill iMessage, which they see as a, as a genuine threat to the business. But I forgot who was making this point. So whoever it is, good point. And I'm sorry, I'm not remembering your name is when I was researching for, for this discussion. But they made a point actually about Facebook Messenger and the wages of engagement that I thought was pretty interesting. And they were saying that if you look at Facebook Messenger, it has a read receipt that you can't turn off. So if you open something on Messenger, the person who sent you the message knows you opened it. Now, you can do that on iMessage, but you can turn it off, too, so nobody knows. Or turn it on for specific Or turn it on or whatever. Um, But Facebook 
again, according to this, and I've not looked too deeply into my messenger settings, but it either it defaults to on or it just is on. And so the point is that it's got this little behavioral trigger that you can't not respond because now you look like an asshole. You read the thing, you closed it, and you wandered off. And this is a problem with a business model built that much on engagement. There is absolutely no doubt that that is going to increase engagement with the platform, or at least in a kind of short-term way, it's going to increase like, you know, you message and then they message back. And, you know, I mean, it, it works. And by the way, I've had good experiences on on Facebook Messenger. So my early communications with my wife, we met in person, then we became Facebook friends, and then we were messaging with each other for a little bit before we went on our first date. So it's like, I've had wonderful things happen to me on Facebook messages. But nevertheless, like there is, if your model is to engage, it pushes you in a lot of bad directions. I mean, I forgot again who said this, but engagement is just like a nice word. The uh, industry is created for addiction. And it's like, if you just replaced it in every instance, if your model is to addict, like it would all make a lot more sense what's going on. Um, within this like stew, you get into the the big fake news problem. And the one reason I think people are unhappy on Facebook and feel unhappy on Facebook is a, a feeling that informationally it's not a good space. So there actually is some interesting research that just came out on this. And this is by... Um, uh, it's by Andrew Guess, Brendan Nihon, and Jason Reifler, who are all political scientists. Uh, they're at Princeton and Dartmouth and the University of Exeter. And I want to note that their, their sample is at least somewhat limited here. They're actually looking at visits to fake news websites, so they can't see just what happened on Facebook or just what happened on Twitter. If you didn't leave the platform and go into the open net, their data set doesn't capture you, So, which is only to say the problem is probably worse than what they're looking at. But they estimate, and I was pretty surprised by the size of this, that between October 7th and November 14th, 2016, approximately one in four Americans above voting age visited a fake news website. So one in four, 65 some million. Um, and that those websites and the people visiting them were just overwhelmingly pro-Trump. In fact, fake news consumption, they said, was heavily concentrated among small group. Almost six in 10 visits to fake news websites came from the 10% of people with the most conservative online information diets. We also find that Facebook was a key vector of exposure to fake news and that fact checks of fake news almost never reached its consumers. The way they find, by the way, Facebook was a key vector of exposure was they looked at what website you were on 30 seconds before. And I think about a quarter of people were on Facebook. And like, you don't see anything like that for Google. You don't see anything like that for anything else. So Facebook, was clearly how a lot of these people were getting to the fake news website in the first place and also their measure by the way maybe you like clicked it open and only looked at it later so it's probably an underestimate um the only thing i would say about this is that what it implies at least to me is that the fake news one is happening among people who are already pretty convinced in one direction or another uh so it is fake news while bad, it does not look to me like it is primarily hitting people who are informationally susceptible. Um, if you're very pro-Trump and you're reading a lot of pro-Trump fake news, it makes you more extreme, so it's a polarization problem, but probably not a huge problem for changing votes. Um, that would be one, I think, implication of the paper. But the other is that these people, if you then just <laughs> increase um, the salience of what they themselves are posting to their friends and family on Facebook— it is not clear you're going to get less fake news at all, right? I mean, at least in pages, you have a lot of competition from pages that are not full of shit. Uh, but if you're just increasing the uh, movement towards sort of like what your friends and family post, it's an open question, depending on what sort of circles you're in, whether or not you're going to be getting a better or worse information diet. I also think it's become, I think, sort of the cool thing to do to become dismissive of the significance of this fake news stuff. But I 
I do want to push back on that a little bit. I mean, that if you look at like the number one pro-Trump fake news story of 2016 was about the Pope endorsing Trump, right? Which is like crazy if you have any information about the actual Pope's actual views. And I, of course, think it's very unlikely that swing voters were like a finger to the wind, like what's Pope Francis going to say? And Because if you were actually curious about the Pope's views, you would seek out information on this subject and would not be duped by a ridiculous story. But what that story did, right, which made this such a paradigmatic fake news story, is that there's a set of people whose identities are cross-pressured, right? They are very strongly Republican conservatives who like Donald Trump. And they also, as do many white people in America, have strong identities as Christians. And some of the people who are white and American and have strong identities as Christians have strong identities as Catholic Christians, right? And it is, if they had the facts, it should be a source of tension in their lives, right? That, like, the Pope says ABCD, Donald Trump says XYZ, and, like, there's a, there's a problem there that has to force you to consider your commitment to something, right? I think most likely, given what we know about how people vote, it would not make you go vote for Hillary Clinton, but it would make you think, right, about life, about your relationship to Christianity, about your relationship to the Catholic Church, about your relationship to the Republican Party. And it creates the kind of space in which productive um forms of engagement in society can occur, in which people acknowledge that life is complicated, that they have multiple allegiances, that leadership and followership are complicated phenomena. And people don't like that, right? I mean, dissonance is unpleasant, which is one reason why, like, flattening kinds of fake news do so well. But that's also really harmful, right? I mean, traditionally, the the way particularly American democracy with its, like, checks and balances and separation of power and federalism, stuff like that works, is it it counts on people being pulled apart across their allegiances. And a lot of what fake news serves to do is, is flatten those things and sort of convince you that not only is the guy you want to support, like, the better candidate, all things considered, but that he's dominant across, like, all dimensions that matter to you. And that's just not like, it's not realistic if you think about, like, there's two parties and 330 million people. Like, everybody should have, like, slightly mixed feelings along some dimension, but nobody wants to have mixed feelings. And, like, that's what fake news helps, like, purge us of those feelings. And I, and I think it's it's unhealthy. Yeah, I think one way you almost get a little bit complicit with the idea of fake news is kind of accepting the fact we're hyper-partisan and, like, ideas are very hard to change And like you're saying, Matt, like this probably is not like the swing voter reading this article and making a decision. But I think that is probably a faulty thing to fall into. I think one of the things we saw with the um, recent Senate election in Alabama, for example, is that views are sometimes changeable, that partisanship is important, but there are certain things about candidates, um, as we saw with Roy Moore, that can make them unacceptable to people who, you know, previously you would have expected to support that kind of candidate. Now, they might not be switching parties. They might just be staying home, but that has an effect on elections. And I I almost think about fake news 
in that same way. Like, it is probably not like the median voter who is like looking at these articles and deciding, but I don't think, I think it's easy at this point to think of partisanship as very set in stone and that fake news is, you know, going to impact that a little bit, but it's not really going to create, that it's only, it's building on something that seems to be quite set already. And I think that's, it's hard to write it off that way. Um, and, and I think one of the things the Nyhan paper made me kind of wonder about that I don't have a good answer to, I'm curious if you guys have thoughts on this, is what you do now. So you have, you have this like hyper user group of fake news readers. Fact checking does not seem like there's some data about fact checking in this paper, and that does not seem to change views. In fact, I think the figure in this was only 24% of Trump supporters had a positive view of fact checkers. Like, well, and even more to the point, nobody they could find saw a fact check of the particular fake news they consumed. <laughs> um, so, like, what do you? Okay, e- even if you're, e- like, if you're running Facebook, even if you're not, like, what do you do at this point? Like, how do you deal with this? I I, I believe this very strongly. I do not think we have anything close to an answer for polarization. So, I mean, Facebook would say, I, I do just want to note this, it goes to Matt's cross-pressure point. This is uh, from the the interview uh, the VP of Newsfeed gave to, to Ben Thompson's trajectory. And, and his argument was actually about this cross-pressured issue, that there's much more diversity of opinion in your friend content, in your newsfeed, than in your page content, which is probably because you pick your friends for a lot of reasons. And you pick the pages that you follow mostly based on your interests, which correlate more with your belief system or ideology. Again, we'll see how that plays out in practice, but, but, but that's the idea. I do not think there's an answer on polarization. I think that we are in an era, and I don't see what is going to change it, where polarization has developed a kind of like feedback loop effect on itself. And like the more polarized we get, the more polarized we become because the more polarized different players can make us. It's easier to run a very hyper-partisan cable network in an era when people's uh, ideological and partisan affiliations align as people like, as their ideological and partisan affiliations align and they, you know, absorb more of a hyper-partisan cable network. It spreads into, you know, more parts of their lives. It becomes cultural. As it becomes cultural, it feeds them back there as it's on social media. I mean, there are a million things that are pushing you all in the same direction. And so to me right now, we are in this era where polarization is going to continue to get worse. And so actually the question is not how to stop polarization because I don't think we have a mechanism. The question is how to create a political system that can absorb polarization more readily. So for instance, if you imagine the polarization has made it more likely that you get a lot of gridlock in Congress, something that might be a good thing to do is get rid of the debt ceiling. So the polarization can't create an, an international financial crisis for no good reason. If you believe that polarization has made it harder to get any agreement, but you want things to be governed, maybe you don't want to filibuster. That, that I often think we look at the equation of polarization and we think, how can we reduce polarization? Whereas there might be more um, easy gains to be made in how do you make a political system that can function better with polarization and that isn't as vulnerable to the possible downsides of polarization, which is, by the way, true of other political systems around the world. We have a political system that is unusually dedicated to the idea of compromise and cross-party coalition, and there's no necessary reason it has to to be built that way in an era when cross-party coalitions and compromise are harder and harder and harder to come by. I mean, I, I think that's right on polarization, but I also think like the people at Facebook should think seriously about the specific problem of the use of their platform to spread deliberate falsehoods, right? And I think that's a serious problem. I think if you ask them, like, 10 years ago, 
Like, what do you want to do with your life? Do you want to wake up in the morning working hard to make sure that people can become miserable and ill-informed? They would say, no, Matt, that's not what I want to do. So the answer to that is that, like, starting tomorrow, they should make it that you cannot share fake news stories on Facebook, right? They're going to say, our goal is, by the end of the week, no fake news will be on Facebook. And it's likely that, you know, between now and Friday, the only way to do that is to take all the news off Facebook, which would be great, right? If you went to the editor of uh, uh, of Vox.com, if you said to Lauren Williams, like, man, I just, like, I can't figure out how to stop it being the case that 10% of our articles are deliberate falsehoods. They'd be like, fuck, we got to shut it down. <laughs> like, you can't just run a website like that and be like, well, we're working on it, right? Like, it would be crazy. Nobody in journalism would think it was remotely acceptable to be like, well, to be honest, I don't think these fake stories are having that much impact on partisan politics. Or, like, it's a really difficult question to know how to avoid publishing deliberately fake stories. Like, it's not that hard. Like, they... These are smart guys. What they're saying is is that they can't solve this problem inside the constraints of their own system, right? But, like, that's just because they've decided that it's not that important to them and that they really want everybody sharing all these news links and, like, they don't want to hire a team and they don't want to be accused of political bias. Like, they have reasons why they are not stopping this. But, like, I just think that it's, like, my message is like, they are underrating this problem. They should take it more seriously, and they should be willing to bear higher costs to get rid of it. Now, not nothing. If you said to me, like, Matt, how do we make it so that there's never a typo on Vox.com? I would say the cost of solving that problem is too high, right? It, it's important to get stuff out there. But, like, what Facebook is doing informationally, like, the non-fake news stuff, like, it has no value to the world, right? Like, it's it's totally useless. Which stuff? Like the the legitimate news, on legitimate Facebook. news has no value to the world. Yeah, no, I don't on, on that. Facebook. I mean, <laughs> what are you doing with your life? <laughs> no, I mean, the, the, I'm saying the spread of it on Facebook. Why would it's, it not value? Because it, it's not a good source of information. You have, you have your professional Facebook page and you post your article. I mean, because I'm trying to make money in this dystopian world that Mark Zuckerberg <laughs> and these guys have created. Like, I mean, you say is it just so, so I to save you? Is it you're saying? A news article only has value if it is given to an audience that is like, come with the context to absorb it. I'm saying there's a way to go. If the rule was just, if you want to follow the news, you have to find some way other than Facebook to get it, that would be fine. So the world we lived in like a decade ago. Right. It was fine. There was no problem. There were many problems with the world in 2006, <laughs> but I can't find news articles on my Facebook news feed. It's just stuff about what my friends are doing. That was not a problem for the world. Now, Facebook perceived it to be a problem for Facebook. And through a series of gyrations, they've now landed themselves in this situation that they claim they don't want to be in. So they should just like get out of it. And if they can think harder, right, It's instead of like moving fast and breaking things, like the functioning of the media and the political system, they could try to approach it again by like moving cautiously and trying to not harm people, um, which I, I think would be a, a responsible set of choices. Now, I, I don't want to make them, right? I mean, they, there's become this weird tendency in the tech world to then just like leap to like, so you want the government saying what? No, I don't. I don't. I just like, I want Mark Zuckerberg to stop. Like, it's it's really bad. I would I, I think I the, would feel bad if, like, my life's work was this giant machine for... And, you know, we talk America like Donald Trump, but there's all these stories about, like, in Myanmar on Facebook, fake news websites encourage 
encourage people to massacre their Muslim neighbors. Like, that's bad. You shouldn't be doing that. I think this is a place where the the, the choice they have to make is not between or shouldn't be between like no news informational content and news informational content. It's I think they have to realize they're not at the power level they are at going to be a neutral platform if they want to to, to play in the, the places they want to play. And like that means having a lot of moderators. It mean, I mean, Facebook is an extraordinarily profitable company. Like one thing they could do, you may not get fake news down to like literally zero, but if you really just did have a huge like staff of people like looking at outlets and like looking at to see whether or not what they're doing is credible and, and it's verifiable. And yes, you know, Ron Paul Patriot Report and the FedNow.com <laughs> is like not a good and news. And like, yes, and some people might get pissed off at you. But I think that the, the vise they've put themselves in on the news side is on the one hand, they don't want to make decisions. And on the other hand, they don't want to be held accountable for what happens when you don't make decisions. And so they've come up with these like, you know, like maybe you attach a little like button to something that has come up as fake news. And so it's like, treat this with care. But, you know, if there's a reason that people curate, there's a reason that organizations with a lot of power are held to some account for what you put out. And that's where I think the the analogy to journalism is more there. What Facebook has not been willing to do is take the step that, that journalism does and say, okay, like a fair amount of our resources are going to go into making sure that the stuff we are putting forward is accurate. And it's not to say you'll never get fooled. It's not to say something will never be wrong. But it is to say that a lot of the organization's time and energy, and in fact, its money, is going to go into making sure that what we give you is as is as truthful as we can possibly figure it out to be. And like that is where they haven't wanted to go. And it's not because it's impossible and it's not because they don't have the money for it. It is because if they do it, they are going to be accused of bias. And they're afraid of that. I think there's a question of like also how their audience reacts, which is, I feel like a huge unknown. I mean, at this point, Facebook is incredibly big. It has like no competitors of its size. You've seen things like, Google Wave or whatever, like rise and fall and like not be able to set up a successful network. I'd be curious, like what happens? There are, uh, I forget who's, this was in another article I read to prepare for this, but reminded me there was at some point in very early Facebook, the, your um, status updates were only on your page. So if I wanted to know like Ezra's update, I would have to go over to his page. And then there was a news feed and there were all these Facebook groups like protesting this idea that it's an invasion of privacy and this is terrible and we're going to buy boycott Facebook. And like, it didn't work. Like those people, those people stayed on Facebook. The news feed is now like a crucial part. They didn't defeat it. And I'm, I don't have like a clear sense of what would happen. So let's say you do do this kind of moderation and you say these articles that were very viral, they're not welcome here. We're not going to allow them on our site. We're going to, you know, go the route of curation and having this big, massive team that checks what publishers are allowed on Facebook. I'm kind of, I don't have a clear sense in my head of like where, what happens next? Like, is there another Facebook for fake news? Does it move to like another platform? Like, does Reddit become the place you go to do this sort of thing or somewhere else or Twitter? I don't know where. Or does it actually like shut down? Does it make it harder to spread fake news? Do they have like such a 
such a large market share that they could make those sort of changes and actually slow the spread of fake news. But it's interesting that you bring up Reddit there and to some degree even that you bring up Twitter because both of them have actually dealt with this in the past couple of years. Reddit went through, I think it was about a year and a half back, and they shut down a bunch of forums um, that they found just really offensive and really racist. And so they there was an effort to create another Reddit. I forget what the name of like like horrible racist Nazi Reddit <laughs> is, but it's out there. You can go to it. You can go use it. And it just it's okay. They just lost some people. It wasn't the people they cared that much about losing. Twitter also has not done a great job of this by any means, but there have been moments when they, you know, banned Milo and, and did stuff like that. And people are like, oh, we're going to boycott Twitter. And Twitter's like, okay, like some of you people are going to leave. And they tried to set up other things and go to other places. And it, I don't think it's really worked yeah. out, but there is like, there are conservative competitors to Twitter. Um, that is one of those things where it's like, yes, like, okay, like take the hit. You know, like some people are not going to like it. Take the hit. I think my question is whether that like other Twitter, other Reddit, if they are as vibrant as like the like terrible Reddit and like racist Twitter that existed. They're before. not. These things are so powerfully based, built around network effects. Mm-hmm. You're on Facebook because everybody's on Facebook. And that's why like that's why it's such a dominant player. And that's why they have the power to do something like this. Yeah. And I mean, you know, I do think you see, right? I mean, you, you see every day that what happens with like regular journalism institutions is that the overwhelming majority of conservatives and a small but non-trivial number of left-wing people yell at you all day that, you know, your effort at neutrality is in fact a, like, fake news manufacturing consent kind of dynamic. And, of course, then outlets will be like, well, we're taking it from both sides. And then somebody else is like, well, that doesn't really mean that you're adhering to the truth. But the point is, is that ultimately, you know, whether you're running Vox or CNN or the New York Times or Fox News or anything else, uh, the people in charge are answerable to their audience and they're answerable to their own conscience. And they ultimately have to be accountable for what they do, right? I mean, there's a wide variety of editorial perspectives out there, but everybody who runs an editorial operation has to admit that, like, they made choices and that if you don't like the choices, you are at least procedurally allowed to be mad at them. And that's what Facebook is trying to evade here, right? Is like, they want to say, well, if you don't like it, it's somehow not my fault that you right. don't like it. That it's just like a bottom-up, you know, like, grassroots process or it was an algorithm or, or something like that. And you can't I just think that's like, that's no way to live your life. And you actually see it in the tweaking of the algorithm, right? That like, it's smart in the modern age to use algorithms to power what people see. But also like the company, they adjust the algorithms, right? Like that's, that's not an, it's not a way out of responsibility. Like it's a smart way to run a modern company to rely on software to assist what you're doing. But like, At the end of the day, it's still a human enterprise. I think they are not succeeding in exempting themselves from criticism and should consider taking a a more forceful stand. You know, the way Apple runs its app store, right, which is like they don't want porn and they don't want like viruses on there. So actual human beings look through the apps and like say who goes in and who goes out and people complain about it. But at the end of the day, like there's no porn on the app store. Like it it works fine. Let's take a break and then talk about health insurance for children. Yes. (laughs) Coming out of porn on the app store. 
at the start of the year, you know, we're all making our resolutions and we're thinking about new ways to better ourselves, to, to learn new things. One great way to do that is listening to The Great Courses Plus. It's just an amazing way to discover fascinating information in virtually any category. Uh, the app gives you unlimited access to thousands of topics with great insight from the world's leading professors and experts. A uh, thing I've been checking out lately is the Turning Points of Modern History course. It's, it's a unique perspective on world history uh, from discoveries, inventions, ideas, the, the stuff that shapes the world, um, the invention of the printing press or, or the rise of social social media, uh, subject of, of our show today, you know, these are things that alter the whole trajectory of history. And it goes through a whole bunch of them. You really gain a, a new, a deeper and broader understanding of the world. Um, so start this year off right by benefiting from all that The Great Courses Plus has to offer. You're giving our listeners a fantastic limited time deal. You can get a free trial or you can sign up for the annual plan and get $20 off. It's a generous offer. It extends your unlimited access to learn anything for the whole year at a great savings. But to take advantage of it, you've got to sign up now because the offer won't last long. So sign up today at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash weeds. Remember, that's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash weeds. Okay, so in not fake, very real news, it has been 108 days since the Children's Health Insurance Program's budget expired, and it has received one tiny funding patch, but not nearly enough to keep the program running. And the thing I wanted to talk about this week is kind of about something that has been stalling negotiations that might suddenly be resolved that really leaves very little excuse for not doing something about this health insurance program that covers 9 million mostly low- and middle-income kids. So one of the kind of surprising odd side effects of this tax reform bill that was passed, which repealed the, repealed the Affordable Care Act's individual mandate, this requirement to carry health insurance, is that it um, caused CBO, the Congressional Budget Office, to redo all its estimates on CHIP because those two things interact with each other on significant ways. And at the beginning, or about a week and a half ago, we got a report from CBO that said, Actually, this tax bill, it reduces the cost of extending CHIP significantly. For five years, it reduces it from $8 billion to $800 million, so one-tenth of the price that it was. And to put a bit of context around this, the whole fight around CHIP this entire time has been about how do we pay for it? What do we use? Republicans in the House have proposed some pretty partisan pay-fors, things like cutting the Affordable Care Act. Democrats have said that's unacceptable. They also want to pay for it, but just aren't willing to accept the ones that Republicans have put forward. So this seemed like a pretty big breakthrough. $800 million in terms of federal budgeting is essentially spare change. That was about a week and a half ago. Less than a week ago, I think last Thursday, we get another report. Um, Frank Pallone, the ranking Democrat on the Energy and Commerce Committee, sent a letter to CBO saying, well, what happens if we extend it for an entire decade? And all of a sudden, CBO sends back this very weird report that you rarely ever see for entitlements. It says, extend this program for a decade and you will save the federal government $6 billion, which is like not usually, like, like usually you don't give people health insurance and save money. So what's going on here is that if CHIP were to expire, you'd have 9 million kids who currently get health insurance there. The expectation is that a good number of them would transfer to the Obamacare marketplaces. Most of them are low income enough that they would get subsidies on the Obamacare marketplaces. So the federal government is just, instead of paying for their CHIP coverage, they're going to have to pay for the subsidies. 
those subsidies would be pretty expensive. And this comes back to the individual mandate repeal. One of the things that getting rid of this requirement to carry health insurance does is it raises premiums on the marketplace, about 10 to 20 percent in the CBO's view. So essentially what CBO is saying here is that the individual mandate repeal is going to make it really expensive to give these kids insurance on the marketplaces. It is a lot cheaper for the federal government just to keep them on the CHIP program to the point that after six years, um, as the premiums rise, it becomes cost saving that the federal anything after six years, an extension of CHIP actually saves the government money. So naturally, <laughs> since we were previously hung up on how to pay for the CHIP extension, now that it turned out it costs less than nothing, Republicans immediately called a special session to extend it, right? No. <laughs> oh, man. That's Wait. weird. What? The way you phrased that question, I was sure the answer is going to be yes. It really seemed like they <laughs> would because they were they were worried about the budgetary effect. I mean, it, I know it Matt, is true. Having your central concern totally alleviated <laughs> would normally make you change your... I know oh. Matt often has this good faith that Republicans are just going to do okay, but what, the right what, thing. What the fuck is happening here? So no, they, they heard this. It's like, fine, 10 years. It saves you money. And they're like, no, we only want to do it for a couple of years. We're not even sure we can totally do that. Because we want other opportunities to change it in the future, but we're not saying how. So, yeah, it's been a really—so this report came out on Thursday, and all of a sudden, so Democrats quickly started saying, well, like, normally—so for the past few months, they've been talking about a five-year extension. And then it was basically like, well, fuck a five-year extension. Like, why not do the 10-year? Why not just make it— permanent if it saves the government <laughs> money. Yes, why not? <laughs> it seems like a pretty... So you saw, you know, Ron Wyden, the Senate finance ranking member, um, Frank Pallone over in the House, both of them start saying, like, forget that five-year deal. Why should we spend $800 million over five years when we can get money over the decade? Um, Republicans have been much quieter on this. Like, I have not seen... <laughs> There's no special session... There's been some chatter of, like, there needs to be a, some kind of short-term spending bill passed by the end of this week. I don't understand what is going on, to be honest. I, I think one of the characters I found most surprising in all these negotiations is Orrin Hatch, who is an architect of the CHIP program, but has been one of the people who has been most vocal about saying, well, we need to find a way to pay for it. The way to—this is the main holdup. You can't do all these things. Also in the context of passing a massive tax bill that was not paid for at all. Um, and I want to say, like, the consequences of this are very real. Um, the states, there are some states that by the end of this week could start running out of money for chips. So we're not just talking about, you know, some theoretical thing. There are families, a family that was profiled in the Los Angeles Times that is trying to stockpile diabetes medication for their child because they can't afford it if CHIP doesn't exist and they have to make preparations for what happens if the CHIP funding expires. So this has the hallmarks of an issue where people are not playing it straight. So initially you have um, this debate that we're not going to extend CHIP, we can't extend CHIP because we don't know how to pay for it um, and we need to find the pay for it. And now that's happening in the context of a tax bill that not only costs something like in total like five to six trillion, but is going to put 1.5 trillion of that on the debt. So number one, the can't find $8 billion to pay for chip is already just clearly not yes. the true issue. But OK, that's the stated reason. And maybe people have odd categorization of this. And, and so fine. So then it turns out you don't need to find the money at all because it pays for itself or you could just find the money in easy ways. And then all of a sudden, 
it's like, nah, but may I don't maybe I mean, and what's weird here is that this is a program that traditionally Republicans have not had an issue supporting. So it isn't one of these programs like food stamps or, or others where there really have been long running Republican divides or TANF, right, where Republicans really don't like that program. Chip, they were involved in its creation. They've involved, they've been involved in its expansion. Um, they usually, on the record, say it's a good program. Something is weird here, and I can't tell if it's just like Chip has become a polarized, like if Democrats win, Republicans lose zero sum political issue, or that underlying changes in the Republican Party have just made them so uh, ideologically opposed to funding health insurance for poor anybody that they don't like Chip anymore, even though they can't quite bring themselves to say it. It is unclear to me what is happening, but something is happening and they are not articulating what it truly is. And I want to underscore just one point, you know, that Ezra made that this chip has a very, very different history than the Affordable Care Act than other health care programs. Like it was such a bipartisan bill when it passed. Its funding has never lapsed. Like this is uncharted territories. One thing you might say is that, you know, going back to our discussion about polarization, the type of Republicans who are in Congress now are different than those who supported it. But again, like I come back to someone like Orrin Hatch, who was an arc, who was, you know, worked with Ted Kennedy to create the CHIP program. Um, I believe in 1997 is when it was launched. I don't know what's going on there. I, I don't understand it. I, I don't know why he is not saying we found this solution. I'm sure Matt has some thoughts on, I, I don't, I don't like he is someone who has been here this whole time as a CHIP supporter I can't get inside his head and think through, you know, why he's not saying, okay, the money issue is solved. Let's get this off our plate. I mean, I do think tactically part of the issue here is that now Republicans who are willing to vote for chip extension want to make it a concession to Democrats that is enveloped into some larger CR deal, right? That it, Something that tends to get toxic in Congress is like when if you're a Republican and you support doing some kind of legal authorization for DACA people or you support a chip reauthorization now that the budgetary consequences have changed, you don't just like say that and sign on for the bill that does that. It's now now you're in like deal making mode. So everything becomes contingent on everything else and everything gets delayed 12 times because we're waiting for an omnibus. The other thing, though, is that, right, it really has changed. Back when Orrin Hatch was creating CHIP or when you had the Kennedy-Kassebaum uh, health insurance portability bill, right, I think you had Republicans who were supporting government intervention in the healthcare system to make a private-based system tolerable to the voters. And that post-ACA, I do think they view all of this through a slippery slope frame rather than through a, like, hold the line frame. I, I mean, that's that's what seems to me to be the big change over 20 years, that it used to be like, okay, we all agree, like, we can't just have poor kids, like, getting sick and dying. So let's do a targeted program that addresses that, like, really good left-wing talking point and not have socialized medicine. But now the Republican perception is, like, Democrats are, like, on the fast train to socialism no matter what. So they're now not interested in, like, fixing concrete problems. But those two things, like, so so I think through, like, let's say CHIP doesn't get funded because, you know, they can't come to a deal or whatever. I don't see how that comes out well for Republicans. Because then, you know, I'm going to write a story about that kid in West Virginia who has diabetes and can't afford his insulin anymore. And there's going to be, like, you think of, right now there's a lot of stories about families being very worried. 
if CHIP doesn't get funded, there are stories about kids not getting their chemotherapy, about not being able to afford health coverage. Like, I don't get where, like, why this is a strong bargaining position for Republicans who are, I think, going to be blamed for the fact that kid doesn't have his diabetes medicine because they are the ones who currently control Congress. Yes. Well, that's the weeds. <laughs> um, Thank you all for joining us. Thank you to our producer, Peter Leonard, uh, to Matt and Sarah, as always, to all of you. And we'll be back on Friday. <laughs> <laughs>